Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Thursday of this week. Well, we have to talk more about the shooting from Texas on Tuesday and a lot of reaction to it with the response time by police and harrowing audio, emotional audio from Anderson Cooper talking to the father of a little girl that didn't make it out of that school. Sabrina Nanji on the provincial election, David Coletto on some of the polling for the provincial election, and an uprise in the negatives for Pierre Polyev seeking the uh, CPC's leadership. We'll get to all that coming up. Toronto Today starts now. I was thinking about this last night, and uh, you can imagine how heavy Tuesday night was, and I told you that I drove my kid to get uh, his haircut. He wanted a haircut. I think it's some kind of girl influencing or something he's getting to the end of grade eight and it's springtime and kids were all locked down with their feelings they may have even been locked down with their hormones they may have been i don't like the idea of of ldh locked down hormone syndrome is not good if you suffer from ldh we're gonna we'll, we'll have a radiothon a little later in the summer on toronto today about it i cannot i cannot abide by that I'm uh, I'm I still have, uh, you know, uh, hormonal moments during spring fever. So imagine it. Imagine a 14 year old. But either way, either way, we go to the uh, we go to the barbershop and we go to the normal hair place and it's closed. And so we got to go to a barbershop. We went to a real time uh, barbershop with, you know, a barber pole and kind of guys. And I didn't I think that was OK women have places and men have places. This felt like a guy's place. The basketball game was on. Judge Judy was on. Yeah, yeah, we men get together and watch Judge Judy. Was that was that some kind of a secret I was not supposed to mention? But I uh, knew about the Texas shooting. And when I got in the car, I thought, let's not listen to the news. Let's not, let's not even listen to John Oakley. Let's not listen to John Oakley for a change. Usually, oh my God, my 14-year-old John Oakley, peanut butter and chocolate just goes together like you can't believe but I said, let's not do this today because it's heavy. And um, I, I'm not a, a, a censorship guy. My dad used to drive me places and I wanted to listen to Top 40 radio. But he knew. He didn't know much about music. I didn't get any kind of music value from him whatsoever. He's not a concert guy. Didn't collect music. Uh, he wouldn't go for a walk with his headphones on on his 1982 Walkman when he was 37. None of that. He dropped me off for concerts. But he knew all the, he knew all the songs that were a little racy. So like, you know, Prince's Little Red Corvette would come on or, um, you know, something by Motley Crue or even Twisted Sister. He didn't like that. And so he did just f- suddenly flick the station. I'm like, what's the, the station's been on for 26 minutes. And I kind of became my dad in the moment yesterday, even with news and talk radio, because I didn't want him to hear about the shooting. And then we get there to the barbershop. We had a long wait at the at this new barbershop. It's a secret. I can't tell you the name. We won't even tell his older brother, my other son, where it is. It's our place. It's the two of our, this is our joint. And uh, and we're going to start playing cards there every Friday night at 8 o'clock. But either way, um, we didn't want the shooting info to, to sort of become a conversation point. Because I never had to do that. I never had to do that. I grew up in an era of kind of peace and harmony. You were worried about nuclear war. You were worried the, the Soviets would bomb us. Um over or, or invade us over the Arctic Circle or something or something weird like in 1984's Red Dawn would happen and they'd paratroop into like middle America somehow. How'd they, how'd they fly over Manhattan and, and Boston and Chicago, whatever, and, uh, and, and come get us. That's what the big fear would be. It wasn't going to school and getting shot if you lived in the United States. And for most of my years living in the States from 98 till about 2008, besides Columbine, there weren't a lot of these things. 
And now it feels like there's one every few months. And there's three every few, every nine months. And there's four or five every year. And, uh, and I took him to the barbershop on Tuesday. And I took him to soccer last night. And, uh, and I'm, you know, he's going to get to graduate grade eight this year. And there's going to be a ceremony. There wasn't for my oldest son two years ago. And I, I know why that was in 2020. I understood that. And you've heard me before get pretty fired up about, about kids. I don't know if I'll be as fired up about kids when kids leave the home, but they're my kids now. I get a finite time with them. And, uh, and I, I've tried to call the bluff on some pandemic uh, mistakes, some U-turns, some um, displays of avarice, and, uh, and, and kind of, to be honest, a classism and some greed. And I think the single biggest issue is closing schools when we never should have. And there's a refusal to admit this or a refusal to have vital contingency plans for our young kids. It's been a lot of most unforgivable stuff. But they're still alive. They're still alive. And uh, I, I thought about that a lot last night when I watched this piece of video. This will not be an easy video for you to listen to. I'm going to warn you. We're going to do some fun stuff this morning. The next minute and a half is not going to be that. Amory Joe Garza was 10 years old. And her father is a medical aide. And he talked with Anderson Cooper last night. And he arrived on the scene and thought, I've got skills. I can help. And he wanted to be of assistance. And he was helping another little girl that was going to survive, but she was covered in blood, some of which was not her own. And she told Anderson Cooper, she told uh, the, the dad, Mr. Garza, uh, and, and Hal Garza, that her best friend had been shot. This is, again, not easy to listen to. But damn it, they should play this for every single person who says, what can we do? It's just America. Second Amendment. How can we change things? Why should we change things? This is the audio last night that had a lot of people in my network talking and sharing. And it's it's unbelievable. Uh, I hope your heart doesn't rip in half listening to it. And I was aiding assistance. One little girl was just just covered in blood, head to toe. Like I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong. And she said she's okay. She was hysterical, saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend, and she's not breathing, and that she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name, and she's... <laughs> and she told me, hey, she said, Amory. That's how you learn. She was so sweet, Mr. Cooper. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. She listened to her mom and dad. She always brushed her teeth. She did. She was creative. She made things for us. She never got in trouble in school. Like, I just want to know what she did to be a victim. <laughs> How would you ever put it back together after that? How would you ever to be a, be a parent to another kid? How would you ever to be able to watch other 10 and 11-year-olds play? How would you be able to have the courage to tell that story on television? I always say this. I, I do not understand. I, I know there's some people that question the ethics of putting people on TV in great periods of grief. I don't know how I feel about that specifically. Um, I, I, I know it sounds kind of 
you know, horrible considering what the subject matter is. I was just amazed because I, I, I guess I have that sort of broadcast uh, journalistic eye and Cooper just let him talk. And that's what you have to do sometimes. Okay. The compassion that he had, he put his hand on the guy's shoulder. I was shocked he didn't hug him. I was shocked that he didn't, but I was struck by the fact that that happened. And I see a poll today that 59%, now this was taken before the Uvalde massacre, but after the Buffalo massacre and by a two to one margin. And somehow this is considered whopping. I'm reading this on media.com yet last night, a whopping two to one margin. Americans say it is quote important to pass stricter gun laws. Whopping two to one. Who's the one? And and it's actually kind of short of that. Fifty nine percent is not sixty seven percent. It's not. Um, I got my share of fifty nines in high school. I felt better when I got sixty seven. A full fifty nine percent said it was either very important, forty one percent, somewhat important, eighteen percent, not too important, thirteen percent, not important at all, nineteen percent. Show this video to the 19% that say it's not important at all. Show this on the Senate floor. Bring out the bring out the, a big screen, as big as you can find, okay? Bring out the Austin Powers big screen and show that video of that grieving father who got told by a best friend of his 10-year-old that his 10-year-old was dead. And the girl, so stricken with grief, didn't realize she was telling the father. Show that. Please show that at some point in time. Anthony Davis is a British talk show host, and he said this about the gun culture in the United States, and there's not much more to say about it. More gun crime and more homicides than any other country in the world, not just by a bit, but by a country mile. In 2020 alone, more than 45,000 Americans died at the end of a barrel of a gun whether by homicide or suicide, more than any other year on record. A 25% increase from five years previously and a 43% increase from 2010. Democrats unanimously support stricter gun laws. 91% in favour. Republicans, nah. They sat there on the Senate floor and they listened to Volodymyr Zelensky tell the United States Congress why he needed $40 billion of weapons to fight a war so older people, adults, and kids would be able to come home to Ukraine and have a country left. $40 billion. And we can't get this video of Anderson Cooper and this grieving father of a 10-year-old shown to the right people in the right places and turn their politics from the money that they get from the NRA I know it's not just as simple as taking guns out of people's hands. I know that there's true evil in the world, but it isn't astronomically more prevalent in the United States than Canada or South Korea or Australia or Portugal or Belgium. It isn't. David Coletto uh, handles Abacus Data and uh, joins us right now. And you got some brilliant um, federal stuff I want to get into on Pierre Pauly Evan a little bit. But we're a week out. Is anything surprising regarding changing trends just purely as to who Ontarians will vote for, David? Well, I think one of the, you know, the trend is not much has changed over the course of the three weeks of the, the campaign so far. The, the progressive conservatives have held, you know, uh, a pretty consistent lead in our polling. They're leading particularly outside of the uh, Metro Toronto and, and even in Metro Toronto, there's some mixed signals about whether, you know, how, how big the liberal lead is there. So I think 
you know, with with now a week to go until Election Day, this is clearly the progressive conservatives and Doug Ford's to lose. And so far, there hasn't been really any change of opinion and not a lot of people paying too much attention to this campaign. You make the point, uh, and I, I couldn't agree more, uh, when you poll and only 35% of uh, respondents think healthcare will get worse if the PCs are reelected. They almost ran on a platform in 2018 saying, we, we've got a budget of austerity coming. We're going to make some cuts to some of the fat in healthcare, some of the fat in education. That's probably the opposite of what people want now. And the budget they were able to get out before the campaign started showed a real influx of spending on healthcare. Like it, it to me, it's really trapped the liberals and the NDP and the polling that you're doing tells us that. It does. And I think it's, it's a, it's a very different, I think, public frame, right? When, when we ask them, what are some of the problems across the province? Uh, healthcare issues, whether it's nurses shortages that can't access a family doctor, um, wait times for surgeries, those are high up on many people's list. And as you said, there is no fear of, or at least not sufficient fear of what uh, a reelected PC government would bring. And that often is an Achilles heel for progressive conservatives in the province, right? You remember mm-hmm. in 2014, Tim Hudak, I think lost the election because he campaign on cutting 100,000 public sector jobs. So, so at a time when the public is feeling anxious about particularly healthcare system, but I think to some extent, the public education system, uh, the Doug, uh, Doug Ford and the Conservatives have done a good job at inoculating themselves from that criticism. And, and that means any, any attacks from the Liberals or the New Democrats haven't broke through and people aren't, people aren't afraid of Doug Ford in another four years of the PCs. David Coletto from uh, Abacus Data joining us on 640 Toronto on Toronto today on this Thursday morning. And and I I saw that, you know, you could kind of see uh, a, a lot reading the, reading the tea leaves a few weeks ago. You looked and thought the Ford government could have less people vote for them. They could have a lower percentage of vote and have more seats. Why is that? Because the Liberal Party just wasn't going to be as battered and as weak uh, heading into an election campaign where where they were going to eat, a you know, a bit of a crap sandwich based on the previous 15 years from the electorate. Now you've got the Liberals and NDP jockeying and it's almost it's a coin flip for them in a lot of ridings. It's a coin flip to see who'd be the official opposition party, but they're going to split a lot of the votes. And, and it's like a running back finding a hole through an offensive line. Those conservative candidates, they're going to go right up the middle in a lot of ridings, aren't they? It, it absolutely could. And and your point's really well you know, aligns with the data is when we ask people, you know, do you want change? About half of Ontarians say they definitely want a change in government. But among that group, they're almost equally splitting um, between the Liberals and the New Democrats. So a lot of talk in the early part of this campaign was, would one of these two parties be able to break away, right, and consolidate that anti-conservative vote? That hasn't happened yet. They're running out of time. And as a result, uh, you might see the progressive conservatives picking up seats that they haven't won Hmm. I can't think of the last time. Think of some seats in Windsor, in 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 and around Niagara Falls, um, some ridings in in Metro Toronto that they won last time. Maybe they shouldn't have won. They might hold on because that that Liberal NDP vote gets split. So it is something gonna something to watch. And even if their vote share drops to the mid 30s because the New Blue Party or the Ontario Party is kind of picking a little bit of its vote away, it may not. It may not matter, and the progressive conservatives can take advantage of that vote split. Yeah, I've got I've got a text question on that for you, um, who's enjoying your analysis, and and uh, and and I I thought that was a concern in the federal election. It obviously was with Maxime Bernier's party. Um, regardless of what anybody thinks of him, everybody gets a vote, and and they bled a little bit of support away from some Aaron O'Toole uh, CPC candidates. 
it, it doesn't look like if you if you go riding by riding, it doesn't look like that's necessarily the case for the conservatives here in Ontario. Is it just the you know, the uh, the PPC was more established. They were getting more attention, more notoriety. People were more frustrated by lockdowns, obviously, back in September than they are now. We have very few things limiting our, our movement or wearing masks or anything like that. There's less a sense of frustration than there was in the fall. So we probably won't see as many protest votes. You may not, although the polls are saying that that if you combine the new blue party and the Ontario party's vote together, they're getting on, on most of the polls. We'll see if this vote shows up on, on election day, about 5% across the province. So it's not insignificant and it's not far behind what Max Bernier and, and the People's Party got mm-hmm. federally. But I think the difference is it's not it's not putting the progressive conservatives or the cons- more, you know, the more mainstream conservative party um, in, in real risk. And that's because the Tories are just so far ahead. If this was a closer race, if, if you had, say, the Liberals breaking away from the New Democrats and it being 35-34, then, you know, if, if the new uh, Blue Party is getting 4 or 5% in, in some of the suburban ridings or some of the closer ridings in, in smaller communities, it could make a difference. But mm. right now, um, Doug Ford has been able to sort of occupy the center-right uh, of the political spectrum very effectively, um, you know, moderated some of his positions on spending, as you mentioned earlier, and, and not making people really afraid. So we might lose a little of his of his right flank, but it's not right now um, appearing to be a big, big problem for him. So even if four or five percent of people do vote for the new blue party, it, it's not likely going to hurt uh, the progressive conservatives. And I think as at least for now, at least we hear publicly, you don't have Doug Ford talking about the need to bring together the coalition to stop the Liberals or the New Democrats. They're not worried. They don't want to give attention to these other parties at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a a strategy of theirs. David Coletto, our guest on uh, Toronto Today uh, from Abacus Data. Now, uh, French language debate last night for the Conservatives uh, and and the party candidates. There's still that wrestling match. And I know there's people that, that lean more right than left that are wondering about this. Is Pierre Polyev most, you know, is he absolutely connecting with the base? Of course he is. But there's going to be that constant debate. And it's what Patrick Brown's poking at. John Charest poking at it, saying this guy cannot win the requisite amount of seats for us to to wrestle this away, wrestle control of the House of Commons away from the liberals. And the more they say that. Some of the data lines up to suggest that, that for if you're not deeply entrenched in the conservative party and supporting them, Pierre Polyev isn't resonating with you. If anything, he's seen as more negative than a positive. Yeah. And, and we came up with a poll last night that showed for the first time since March, and we've been tracking how people feel about the different candidates, Pierre Polyev's negatives are rising and his positives are going down. Now, he's still by far, as you said, the most popular candidate among those who voted conservative or would vote conservative nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, his negatives are higher slightly than Jean Charest among the general public. But at that stage, it, I don't think it, it won't affect whether he wins or not. But the underlying argument that his opponents are making is he's too risky. He's too risky. He's, he's doubling down on some very um, unorthodox policy positions. And I think over the last two weeks since the first debate, the first English debate, um, there's been a conversation happening. Now, doesn't mean he's not going to win, but I do think some of the arguments about his electability are starting to resonate, mm-hmm. and we'll see whether there's enough time. Um, you know, um, you only have till next week to to sell memberships, and then it's about convincing those who did sign up um, to vote for you. There's still time for that argument to, to take hold, 
but uh, but certainly he's still the one who has got the most energy, Pierre Pollard in the in in the party, and I still think is the front runner to win this thing. No question. Uh, you can go to abacusdata.ca, find out more there. David, love our conversations. Let's have another one next week before uh, before Thursday. I appreciate you coming on. Let's do it, Greg. Take care. You got it. Um, our next guest wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, why the return of travel in Canada now feels up in the air. And if you've known anybody or known anybody who's known anybody who's traveled out of Pearson Airport in the last month, Pearson Airport's a problem. The mandates are a problem. I even looked at the cost. Um, it's cheaper. If I want to go to England, it is cheaper. I swear, no word of a lie. I've done this three times as a test because I'm thinking about going in August. To go from, I'm going to drive to Buffalo, even with gas prices, fly from Buffalo to Boston, fly to Logan Airport, which is amazing. And I can fly there for about 650 US from right from Logan to Heathrow. Why would I go the other way to Pearson Airport? Why would I do And I get a shorter flight from Boston as well uh, compared to Toronto to London. And then Pearson loses. Air Canada loses. Everybody loses. And Baris Chandra is an economics professor at the University of Toronto, does a ton of research on uh, airlines. How's about going to England with me? We'll watch some soccer in August. Do you want to do that? Do you want to uh, 600 bucks from Boston? Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, no, that um, I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> when you write this and, and you get reaction to it, uh, again, so, a, a lot of what your research tells you is about um, is about data, but you're hearing anecdotally from the same people I am who they're trying to do anything to avoid uh, Pearson. And this is not unlike when a restaurant or a movie or a TV show starts to pile up bad reviews. People try and avoid it. Yeah, it's true. And, it, you know, the problem is these perceptions, um, and I think now they're really grounded in reality. But either way, these perceptions are really hard to undo because, you know, then you sort of get this reputation that sticks around for a long time. And people start avoiding, you know, people might start avoiding Pearson and developing new habits, flying out of you know, Billy Bishop, Hamilton, driving to Buffalo, like you said, mm -hmm. and then they just do that. And they don't stop to think, you know, years later, they'll say, oh, yeah, Pearson, it's a mess, even if it's not. And so that's a real problem. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. And um, and the mask mandate's been dropped for about six weeks now, maybe seven in the United States. A lot of the, as you know, a lot of the uh, doomsayers uh, said one thing and the other thing ended up resulting not un, uh, not dissimilar to the mask mandate being lifted in Canada or sorry, in Ontario in schools and shopping centers and whatnot. Um, and I, I love the idea of sitting on a plane, not having to wear one, judging my own risk, feeling like maybe if I've got a cough, I would put one on. Maybe I would. But that's an incentive also to make that trip to Buffalo or to make that trip. I've had friends go from London and they'll go down to Detroit to fly instead of coming up to Toronto. It's more pain in the ass. But once you get on that plane, it's all worth it. No, that's right. If you're taking a big international trip, a transatlantic flight for, you know, 10 hours or more, it's, you know, if you're the kind of person who, you know, for whom this really this bothers you, absolutely. That's, a, that's another reason to fly to the U.S. And yeah, I think ever since they've dropped the mask mandate in the U.S., you know, at the time, there was a lot of sort of predictions of doom. But, you know, as with many other things we've seen, once you drop the restrictions, life sort of just snaps back to normal and very quickly people just stop thinking about it. And Barris Chandra is our guest on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. You know that there's planes that it's one thing if your plane can't take off because of weather. It's one thing we've all probably sat on the tarmac, snow, de-icing, takes longer than usual sometimes. I'm hearing more and more. And a friend of mine just got back from Arizona a week ago and she sat on the tarmac for 90 minutes, 100 minutes. And you note that this is happening more and more because we're having this bottleneck at customs and security checkpoints. Is it just the dropping of the mandates and some of the requirements that would change this? What else would change it? Yeah, so it's not just the mandates, to be fair. I mean, I think that's a that's a important 
part of it. But part of this is not under the government's control, and one has to sort of acknowledge that. So it's it's very hard to hire people right now. We have a tight labor market, which in many ways is good. You know, obviously, for if you're a worker and you're in high demand and your wages are going up, hopefully that's a good thing. Uh, but that makes it you know more difficult for the government to hire, and of course they have to hire people and train them, and that takes weeks. You know, the security clearances. So I'm not blaming the government for that. Although one could argue maybe they should have seen this coming sooner. Um, you know, maybe they should have realized in March that there'd be a big uptick in travel, and you know, the late spring and the summer for sure. But but that's not entirely under the government's control. It's also the case that you know for years actually, um, government-appointed panels have pointed out that security procedures at Canadian airports and in particular at Pearson are completely out of date and need to be overhauled. And the, what is true is the government has not done anything about this. So this predates the pandemic, but it's, it remains a problem at Pearson in particular. So so if I embarrass if I talk to you on in 2018 and I say. How, how do you feel about our airport? How do you feel about our administrative system at Pearson? You'd have told me four years ago there were already not unlike healthcare, right? Not unlike ICU beds. This was a problem that uh, the pandemic, uh, you, you, you know, it just it just snapped it in two and and made it obvious to all that we've got a broken administrative system. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's actually a great analogy to the healthcare system. You know, the problems have been piling up slowly over the years and even before the pandemic. And there's no one incident that we can point to and say, look, this sort of broke the camel's back. But now that we're emerging out of the pandemic and people are going back and sort of seeing what the problems are, they're realizing how, how bad they were, how much worse they've gotten. And really, we've, we've not done anything about this for years. I'm reading your op-ed. I was thinking as well, um, and I've only been on the one flight during the pandemic, and it was coming back um, from Los Angeles on a busy Monday in February. Uh, that was actually the same day that that the uh, prime minister enacted the Emergency Measures Act because everything in Ottawa was still happening. But I thought about coming in to that that customs room, and I'm no I'm no home rental guy. I'm no Scott McGilvery, but that's a bad room. Like that's that's too crowded a room. It's too convoluted. People get confused. There's too many. There's the machines where you can you can go on your own, and then you still have to wind your way. When when you get to Heathrow, when you get to LaGuardia, when you get to a lot of other international airports, even even when you go through U.S. Customs at Pearson, they're more open. You feel like you're in a hallway, not in an enclosed room. Like that room's a massive problem to me, and the arrive can't happen. Everything you document that we have to do, it makes it worse. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, to be clear, there are problems at some U.S. airports too. But what's really, you know, imagine you're getting off, again, a long flight. You're probably disoriented, jet lagged, you know, at least mm -hmm. some of the passengers are. And it's confusing. And if at that stage you're required to, you know, obviously pull out your passport, but also your ArriveCan app and your proof of vaccination and, you know, various other sort of, uh, you know, bureaucratic checks that didn't used to be in place before, obviously travelers are confused, they're tired, you know, that just adds more time to every processing, every individual passenger. You uh, you write um, subsequent to your article on Twitter, Canada has consistently treated border policy as performative theater. What changes it? When does it change? I know it, it gets everything gets politicized. So it's the conservatives being critical of the liberals. If the shoe was on the other foot, the opposite would be true. But I, I, I don't I don't have a clue where we're going with the health minister, with the prime minister looking at this. I don't think I think the masks on the planes, I think stopping unvaccinated people from getting on planes. I just think if you surveyed Canadians, they wouldn't care. They have to judge their own risk now after 28 months. I think that's right. I think, you know, unfortunately, the government has now sort of painted itself into a corner. They've insisted now that the um, these mandates, especially the vaccine mandates, are just necessary. They're absolutely crucial. 
for keeping the country safe, which, you know, is just evidently no, no longer the case at this point in the pandemic. But they can't just change their mind now because people will say, well, what, you know, what's changed the data for you to reverse course? And so I think the problem is they really dug themselves into a hole and I don't see how they climb out of it. Um, it's, it's a real problem. That's, I mean, it's, this is no longer, you can't blame passengers for this, you know, the way the minister did a couple of weeks ago. This is now clearly on the government. Yeah, like, like Ambarsh, if I, if I had two shots and my second shot would have been in the middle of June, then I haven't had a vaccine in almost 12 months. I'm not sure how that makes me. And I've had, you know, I, I haven't had Omicron either. But somebody who's even had one shot and has had Omicron is probably less of a threat to spread or infect than I am getting on an airplane next to them. No, I think that's right. I mean, you had Dr. Chagla on a couple of weeks ago and he made this point. There's clear data out of the UK now that you know, the, the, there's no longer the case. It, it might well have been the case, it probably was in the past, but it's no longer the case that my being vaccinated means that I'm a lower risk than somebody who's not, especially for the purposes of travel. So really there's no empirical justification now to continue on the same path we've been on for all these you know, many months. Ambarsh, thank you very much for the time, man. I love our conversations and, uh, and continue having a good summer. We'll, we'll check in again real soon. Thanks, Greg. Big part of our uh, election coverage on our show is chatting with QP observers Sabrina Nanji, and she's kind enough uh, to join me right now. You make this point, and you did a great interview with uh, Philippe Fournier, uh, who's with 338 Canada. They, they do such deep dives. They get great polling analysis in each particular riding. And you make the point to him, and you're right, voter apathy tends to favor the status quo. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now. I'm a little getting a little worried that turnout will be notably lower than the last provincial election. And given all the all the fire we've had about provincial issues and COVID and lockdowns, I, I'm a little surprised that that would be the case, but I'm not doubting it now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's obviously, you know, this is my, my bread and butter, Queen's Park provincial politics, but I think a lot of people haven't really tuned into what's happening here. Uh, you know, the general public isn't really that enthused. And, and as Philly pointed out, you know, there's a lot of factors at play here. It might be a bit of COVID fatigue. It's summer, you know, we, we're kind of... Um, tired of hearing, you know, being glued to the news every day, I should say, uh, you know, th there's not really a compelling storyline or, or leader uh, that people are, you know, really hitching their wagon to. And that that tends to favor the powers that be, you know, uh, Doug Ford and the conservatives have kind of been laying low. They've got some candidates dodging local debates. Uh, Doug Ford is not speaking to reporters as often as his rivals. Uh, and that seems to be working in their favor. So I, I think, you know, it, the the other factor at play here is that voter apathy and turnout, you know, when it's low, it tends to be low among younger people. And we know that conservatives generally, uh, you know, tend to get voted on, voted for by, by the older crowd, the 60 plus crowd. So there's a lot at play here. You know, there's still a week left, but there's really not much time to change the storylines we've been seeing since day one, which is that the conservatives are on track to form another majority government. And, you know, maybe we'll see who, who forms official opposition uh, between the liberals and the NDP, but, but they're still, you know, essentially neck and neck. Philippe tells you, you ask what could change sort of the, you know, the direction of, uh, of, of the boat heading down the river in the direction of a, of a Ford majority. And Philippe says, unless there's a scandal that has three inch thick letters in the newspaper, I don't see it happening. And I think that's there. And I think those, to be honest, Sabrina, I, I think those, those shots have been shot already. It's, it's Stephen Lecce and the thing at university. Of course, that's not great. Of course, no one would support it under the guise of 2022 or for a, a 40 year old man to do it. 
But I, I, I just feel like those things aren't no, – no one's holding on to something and, and ready to throw a grenade into the works here in the next week. Look, for any tipsters that are out there, my 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 door is <laughs> wide open for any brown envelopes you want to slip me anonymously. But you're right. You know, I think uh, typically we see these harsher attacks coming out towards the end of the campaign. And we have seen that a little bit. But, you know, the parties and especially the opposition parties, they played a lot of their cards at, at the beginning of this race. And that's kind of hard to stick to, especially the incumbents and the conservatives. Uh, you know, we've kind of seen a lot of. Uh, a lot of back and forth between the the liberals and the NDP, especially, you know, uh, Del Duca, it, it came out this week, uh, Del Duca, you know, spent $50,000 worth of, you know, hospitality charges to his local riding association. I think that might be a little bit of inside baseball for a lot of people, you know, uh, going to fancy dinners at, at steakhouses like the keg, that type of thing. I don't know how how fancy people think the keg is. I'm defending another. the keg. You and I have <laughs> argued about restaurants before. Don't get me started. I will defend the keg to the to the very end. I like Ruth's Chris also, if uh, people want to send <laughs> gift cards there. Well, so does Stephen Del Duca, right? <laughs> and and here's the thing is that, you know, I had word that the conservatives were working on this attack ad aimed at Del Duca, you know, reminding people, it's, it's nothing new, but reminding people that, uh, you know, he had a backyard swimming pool that he did not get the permits for initially. Uh, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Uh, and, and they haven't really felt the need to, you know, spend the money, fire off that attack just yet. Uh, so, so that kind of tells you a lot too. And then don't forget about Andrea Horvath. You know, the liberals are accusing her of a cover-up. Uh, her party has once again, you know, faced accusations of anti-Semitism and, you know, reportedly, uh, the, the people involved were told we're, we're going to deal with this after the election. So I, I think this is, you know, kind of inside baseball. I don't know if this is really going to stick, if this is going to move people. Uh, it might just keep people at home for anything. Uh, of course, you know, we, we've still got a week left. Things could change, but there's really, you know, not a lot, not a lot of time to switch the storylines up. Sabrina Nanji from QPobserver.com, our guest on uh, Toronto Today. I, I had David Coletta on talking about polls uh, at the end of the last hour. And um, the one thing I might differ with him on, he thinks there might be a little influence and a little siphoning to the Ontario party, to the new blue away from the conservatives. I don't see it to the same extent we saw in the fall with Maxime Bernier in the PPC. I, I think Bernier was a bigger name. There were loyalists to Bernier. I think um, there were a lot of people frustrated by uh, lockdowns and federal mandates, many of which still exist. I don't see that provincially. We're a pretty wide open province. There's not a lot of provincial regulation right now. And it was Stephen Del Duke and Andrea Horvath in the middle of March that said, whoa, 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 let's not move too quickly here. Keep those masks on. Let's keep this closed. And I, I just don't I don't see the Ontario Party in New Blue in, in you know, having that effect. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I, I think one area when I talk to conservative insiders that they're maybe a bit less confident on it is Cambridge. And of course, we know that uh, Belinda Carhalios, a uh, new blue party leader, former Tory, uh, that, that's where she's running. And that's where they're pushing their resources. But again, I, I don't know if they're sweating um, the new blues so much, maybe even the NDP there, that that's an interesting riding I'll be watching out for on election night. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I think, you know, where this could happen is the Windsor area. We did see Bernier and the PPC sort of perform well there in, in uh, you know, the, at the federal level. But uh, in terms of whether they can actually nab a seat, that seems a little less likely. And you're right. There's not much of a soapbox for these fringe parties to stand on, especially now with, uh, you know, restrictions lifted. Not many people want to even be talking about COVID, which just as an aside, I, I think is probably a mistake for the opposition parties. They've been kind of talking about policies that are 
that, you know, generally are more in, in the conservatives purview, things like affordability, things like highways or lack thereof, you know, the gas tax, uh, that sort of thing, and, and rather than healthcare. But, you, you know, there, there is an opportunity here for them to get more resources because we have the per vote tax subsidy in Ontario. And so if you get 2% of the vote province wide or just 5% in a riding, then you get a quarterly subsidy. Mm-hmm. And that goes a long way towards, you know, building your resources and, and uh, you know, fighting for issues that that you believe in so i i think that that's kind of where i'll be watching but in Mm. terms of if they can get a seat it doesn't seem very likely i know we'll chat election day morning next thursday check her out qp observer sabrina nanji great stuff as always uh you always bring it thanks for this thanks greg thanks for listening to toronto today we've got a live show back tomorrow 5 30 to 9 o'clock you can hear it on 640 toronto and on the radio player canada app